Jim friends, and welcome to the future of gaming. Um, you're listening to our fuck costs. Today is, I think, episode 54, um, counting up. So we've been doing this for more than a, a year now. Good job, us. Um, my name is Nico. As most of you know, I am joined by David Amore, CEO and co-founder of Playments. We have Matt Dion, who is an autonomous world researcher. And we have Will Robinson, who is... I called you, Will, an on-chain game, the on-chain games guy at Alliance DAO, which is a Web3 accelerator. Is that a fair description? Sure. You could call me the on-chain games guy. Oh, oh yes. Oh. The ego. The ego. So <laughs> from, from the ego and from my description and the, the people that we have around the table, you can probably already imagine, and probably from the title of this episode as well, the plan is to talk about fully on-chain games, autonomous worlds, what are they, what's the difference, why is this interesting? What can we do with it? Um, and um, a bit of a laying the scene or laying a foundation for some future episodes because there's a lot of interesting stuff in this space going on right now. And the three people here are involved in those interesting things. So this is a good squad to bring together. Before we dive into the meat of things, I think a bit of backgrounds uh, would be good. Um, David, I'm, I'm going to let you go first because I... I enjoy English accents. So. <laughs> okay, let's do it. So, long-time games guy, uh, joined in joined the games industry in 1990, spent some time at publishers, spent some time making console games, spent some time making mobile free-to-play games. So that's, you know, 10 years per vertical. I go wherever there's in something interesting going on. And two years ago, that was the world of Web3 games. And specifically, with your help, actually, Nico, you remember you were there, but you said, look, we both attended a conference and thinking this concept of a fully on-chain game is pretty interesting. And so really, since we started the company, Playmint, two years ago, we've committed to building fully on-chain games. So we've been doing this thing that we're talking about for a while. So team of about 15 of us in the UK, all sort of games industry vets, building this weird thing called on-chain games. Fascinating. By the way, quick like um remark you mentioned that you go where you think like you go into things that you find interesting um there's this venture framework around types of founders and from a very high level you have hedgehogs and you have foxes and hedgehogs yeah. are individuals that are extremely extremely passionate extremely um about like one single topic they're an expert mm -hmm. like a um like a subject matter expert and then you have foxes who are a bit more Opportunistic is probably shedding a negative light on it, but you know, combine have a wide variety of skills that they can apply in creating valuable businesses across a slightly wider range of, of subjects. Um, and yeah, so, which was is there a good one? Are they both equally good? I would say, bad? I would say there's probably types of ventures that are um, probably best done by hedgehogs and others best done by foxes. Um, I would I would define you as a fox, and I would say that I would I think. I think that you know, fully on-chain games are probably one where foxes do pretty well as well. All right, I'll take it. There you go. <laughs> uh, unless the others agree, and then I, I'd love to hear that. Uh, but maybe next, uh, Matt. Sure. So uh, thanks for having me on, Nico. Um, my background, briefly, I've been in the games industry for about a decade at this point, uh, largely in mobile games, working at places like Pocket Gems, Jam City, and most recently EA, where I was until earlier this year. Um, I was working on a game called Battlefield Mobile, 
that was eventually canceled and they laid everyone off at the studio and that gave me some time to sort of explore some passions of mine. Um, I've also been writing and contributing with a group called Novik for a while. Um, and through the folks at Novik, I learned about this phenomenon of fully on-chain games. They did a deconstruction of Dark Forest uh, a couple of years ago during the sort of crypto bull run, and I found that to be really fascinating. And fast forward to earlier this year, I had this uh, free time on my hands, and I started doing a bit of a bit of consulting. I have a research consultancy called Always Scheming. Did some work with Bitcraft actually a few months ago on UA and Web3, but started this passion project exploring fully on-chain games, and that pivoted into... Uh, a newsletter that I kicked off about a month ago called Dark Tunnels, which is sort of seeking to bring my background of product management and business and games to the sort of emerging fully on-chain games ecosystem. Um, because as I'm sure we'll talk about here in a little bit, a lot of the discourse uh, in the space is very kind of academic, philosophical, technical in nature. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's great. I've certainly learned a lot from that, but my background is business and I try to be a little bit more pragmatic about these things. And so that's sort of the perspective I've tried to bring to the space, but uh, it's been amazing getting involved and, and, and meeting the people like you all here on the call and just, you know, getting involved, trying to find ways to contribute as uh, someone who's not technical myself. Highly, highly recommend uh, Matt's news newsletter, Always Gaming. Yeah. I'll, I'll put some links in the description, but, um, you know, I've been digging into this space to this space for a while, and every time I read it, I still pick up a bunch of things. Um, so I appreciate you you putting that out there, Matt. And you know what I would say is that there's a lot of very technical, uh, yeah, uh, content about on chain games that makes sense if you're already in that world. The the thing that is less of is somebody that's trying to get trying to understand it for the first time. And I think you do mm -hmm. a great job of that. That's my favorite thing. David, when we called earlier today, asked me, like, we need to find a way to get more people into this space. And actually, David, we should just point them to Matt's newsletter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Matt, is there a way to see the first, you can go back and see the first email, right? Yeah, so there's a, a like a featured post when you go to the link, which I'll, I'm sure Nico will share out. Right. And it's it's just an introduction to yeah. Dark Tunnels, where I got the name for the newsletter, like what I'm trying to accomplish with this project. Really short uh, intro, and then you can you know sort of read the subsequent editions that are explaining all the sort of fundamentals. What are fully on-chain games? Why are they interesting? All the stuff we'll kind of dive into on this podcast, I'm sure. Good. Will, where were you born? <laughs> I was born in Montreal, Game City. Right. Feel free to sh to share, you know, whatever you think is relevant in your background, which you you, you so, have ten minutes. So, okay. Oh, great, great. So we'll st we'll start from birth. I guess that makes sense. Um, so my mother always told me I could be anything I wanted, so long as it was best in the world, David. So you can't take that away from me. I have to be the fully unchained games guy. Um, and uh, it started with a journey uh, into uh, physics and being a physics researcher and realized that I wasn't going to be number one. Uh, there was clearly one guy in my class who was better than me, and that was a small sample size, so I was fucked. Uh, I so started to study alternative disciplines uh, and stumbled across uh, cinema and uh, fell in love with storytelling and the art of cinematic storytelling. I did... Research in that uh, as an academic until I realized that my peers were watching more movies than me and I had no edge against them either. Uh, but I was highly addicted to video games and had played many different video games and decided to convince all of my professors in my film studies degree to let me study cinema. 
they uh, announced to me that games were a fad, the industry was small, and likely going to die or be absorbed by cinema. And I was like, that makes no sense to me. <laughs> let, me let me give you a counterexample, perhaps. Uh, and they said, okay, you can write about games as long as you can tell us what's different or interesting about them and why they aren't just bad movies. Uh, and that put me down a rabbit hole uh, looking at procedural rhetoric. Mechanism design is another way people refer to it. Uh, it's how game designers build in rules to their games in order to communicate ideas. And I think the best mental model for that is like SimCity. So SimCity is based off one book written in 1983. It has a lot of ideology behind what an optimal city is. And to this day, every single urban planner will tell you that book is like garbage, like trash to your ideas on what cities ought to be. But it inspired a generation of people to become urban planners and start from a terrible starting point of what an optimal city ought to look like and unlearn that in college. Uh, but the rules of the game embodied a politic. It embodied an ideology and tried to communicate that to players. And it turns out that all games do this to some extent. And that's what I spent eight years researching uh, through the master's and PhD. And uh, I made games that tried to explore difficult topics like net neutrality or piracy or when is it optimal to kill yourself in high school. Uh, these sort of like niche indie game titles that were looking at communicating harder ideas through game rules. And then uh, discovered Bitcoin uh, in a speakeasy. My cousin just passed me mastering Bitcoin and said, you have to read this cover to cover because I think what you're doing in games and game design is happening in crypto, only it matters 10 times more and they'll pay you more too. Uh, <laughs> At the time, Ubisoft was offering me a luxurious job in Q&A where I was going to be able to run into a wall over and over and over again all day long. Uh, and I decided, no, I wouldn't take that opportunity and instead uh, dove headlong into uh, accounting. That was the only gig I could get in crypto. I helped people do accounting of crypto projects, uh, became a forensic auditor by the end of it and helped audit things like the Ethereum Foundation's wallets, uh, different exchanges, and... Uh, Joined Alliance two years ago now to help invest in Web3 projects. Uh, I was only doing DeFi at the time, but it turns out in the last year or so, games on chain made a lot of sense. So I started a DAO called Dark Forest DAO, which played the game professionally almost uh, and came into the top a couple times and have since built a lot of interesting things in that space and tried to invest in this space as well. Uh, so that's me. Sorry for the longer intro, guys. It's good. Was, uh, was a great intro. You, I think, were the first of, of the four of us um, exposed to the idea of putting a game on chain. And, you know, some of your writings, um, you know, just talk about that. When, when did this interest start? And, and when did you, um, was for you the interest in blockchain for games always about putting the game on the blockchain? Or was it a, a mindset shift you had to make coming from, what we see in the mainstream, you know, today, which is using the blockchain as a ledger solely to track the ownership of assets and having a game, you know, besides that in, in a separate server. So because I was born into crypto in 2017, uh, my tolerance for centralization in projects is very low. At the time, there's a purity of Bitcoin and of other projects trying to make sure that there'd be no central points of failure. And when I saw all of these games basically running on central servers, then pushing to the blockchain what the result was, I became quite upset because those servers could say anything. 
at any point, the core team could change what they did. And so these assets had no scarcity. They they could just be printed at infinitum if they wanted. We had the same thing with the Steam Marketplace, which is a fabulous marketplace with very low fees and lots of liquidity. So I was never particularly excited by only putting the game part on chain, or the game asset part on chain. And I wanted the game loop to be on chain too, so that there wouldn't be what we call an oracle problem. The oracle problem in, in crypto is generally how do you trust an outside source of information when the relayer of that source of information could be corrupted at any point in its sort of information chain. Mm -hmm. Allow me to take a step back because I think um, in my excitement, I already jumped forward a bit. Um, Matt, maybe I'll, I'll ask you this question. How do you define a fully on-chain game? Um, the way I think about it is... Uh, that basically the the logic and the game state of the game is on the chain. When you hear about a lot of the sort of public discourse of blockchain gaming, it's it's kind of as Will was saying, there, there's some aspect of centralization to it. Maybe it's like, oh, I have my assets on the chain, but the game itself is running on some centralized servers. Um, to me, it's like the actual logic of the game, the rules, the game state, all of that, um, occurs on the blockchain. That's what it means to me. You know, and I'll, I'll quantify that a bit, which is that I think there's about a thousand Web3 games and probably 30 fully on-chain games. So the vast majority are not fully on-chain games. And uh, sometimes it gets used interchangeably or incorrectly, but uh, it's, it's only a tiny proportion that are fully on-chain. Mm -hmm. And I think if you, if you look at the ratio um, when it comes to players... It's probably even worse. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Way worse. Um, Wait, someone's, someone's got a player. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Good. Um, so, you know, I hear recently, uh, I, I heard a term autonomous worlds emerge and rise in, in popularity and feels like people are using fully on-chain games and autonomous worlds interchangeably. Uh, David, you, you mentioned in the beginning that you've, you have thoughts here. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, what are your thoughts on this? One, they're only my thoughts. So one of the things in the, and and I describe the on-chain gaming community as pretty tight knit. Like uh, there's probably under 500 people building these kind of games and comparing notes all the time, mm -hmm. and we talk together all the time. It's a really fun group of people, almost an art scene, as someone described it as. And within that, there's a concept of autonomous worlds, but it's quite poorly defined at the moment and and therefore it's sort of left to people to describe what it is there's a you know there's a, a few points of direction my and some people say well that's okay autonomous worlds will be the strongest idea that, to come out of that discussion which you know i get it but doesn't really suit that's not how i work i like things to be tightly defined so my attempt at describing an autonomous world is that, and the best way I have of describing it, I think, is that if you think of a game like World of Warcraft, which is owned and operated by Blizzard, and the people in World of Warcraft can experience the fun things that Blizzard create for them, and Blizzard could adjust that world to make it more fun or change the economy to balance this or ban the player to do that. But So ultimately, it's players taking part in Blizzard's world. An autonomous world is a world that runs on a blockchain that isn't owned by anybody. So it might have been created, well, would have been created by somebody, but it lives on a blockchain and can't be altered once it's been set up. And that world has a bunch of digital physics, which is um, 
almost like game rules that, you could, that are immutable. But on top of that, people can build different experiences for each other to enjoy. And the difference there is that it's those experiences created by the people playing the game, not the people that have built the game. So it's not, to use the World of Warcraft analogy, it's not Blizzard creating that content or that experience. It's the people in World of Warcraft creating those experiences for others. And a lot of people say that feels a bit like modding. But I think a difference between modding and this is that all of those modifications are happening with a single, within a single game world to a single set of people. So whatever those modifications are, they all uh, show up for all players instantaneously. And I think that's interesting. And it, although the typical model of a digital world is that somebody owns and operates it, you know, whether that's TikTok or YouTube or Facebook or anything, or World of Warcraft, then... Um, our human world is different from that. Our human world is owned and operated by the people in the world, not outside the world. There's no God that appears to be uh, operating the world that we live in. So I think, although in digital worlds are normally run with an admin mode, it's really interesting to think of an autonomous world that runs forever, can't be changed, and the people inside the worlds are the, are the people that are creating the experiences for others to enjoy. So... You introduced you or you introduced yourself. You're building an on-chain game yourself. Yes. Um, maybe you can walk us through how you're thinking about the type of game you want to build given this new technology and whether you consider it to be a fully on-chain game or an autonomous world and, and why you think that. Yeah, okay. So we're building a simple MMO. Um, and by simple, I mean think of Minecraft and then come down a notch. That's the sort of level of fidelity that we're building. But that, in a way, isn't the interesting thing. The interesting thing is this idea that it's a game world that lives forever, can't be changed, but people can build, the people are playing it, can build within it. And when we thought about what sort of game that would be most suited for, it's an MMO. You know, an M MMO is good because it's player sharing a game world and the idea that that game world doesn't disappear is good. So I think a persistent game world rather than session-based is probably preferable if you're building that kind of game. But everyone's just feeling their way around with this topic at the moment. But um, having a game where people can create trading posts or clan systems or contracts or uh, or postage systems or cinemas or whatever, just whatever they think is going to be useful for them and others to enjoy can be built permissionlessly. So we're trying to build a game that accommodates those things. And importantly, has a game design where if you let people build whatever they want, it still can't break the game. So there's a bunch of technical and creative challenges in trying to build an MMO that allows players to extend what that game is without breaking it for each other. And so would you, would you describe your game as you're, you are building an autonomous world? Oh, yeah. Um, well, by my definition, a primitive version thereof. What do you think? Will, you're nodding. So uh, do you, you think, uh, is that what you think of as an autonomous world? Yeah, definitely. And I don't think an autonomous world needs to be very high fidelity. Like I was arguing that an autonomous world could just be a garden bed and, and seeds and flowers, right? And people just plant flowers and that's the only thing you can do there. Like as long as it has a shared set of physics that everybody has to operate within, that's a fine world enough for me. <laughs> I, I think uh, something that needs clarification within the on-chain gaming community, is it important that people in that world can extend what that what's in that world? So is it just 
a game world that lives forever that somebody can go and play a game in? Or is it important that the inhabitants of that world have the ability to sculpt what that is for themselves and other players? So uh, that, that's sort of undecided as yet, <laughs> I would say. What do you think? As soon as, as soon as you put it on a chain, it's permissionless. And at that point, it's by default extendable. So like when we were playing Dark Forest, we wanted to have a smart contract player that could unite hundreds of players together to win a round as a group without having to trust one another. Uh, and we built smart contract logic that did that and created a guild system that the game had never imagined before. Um, and this was possible because the games on chain have to be trustless and permissionless. Anybody can do anything to them um, as long as that doesn't violate the physics of the game itself. Mm -hmm. So can I ask, like, where do we where do we draw the line exactly? Because what I'm hearing from Will is like, once it goes on the chain, it has a lot of these properties that we're ascribing to autonomous worlds. And I guess it's okay if it's not like a super clear boundary. But one of my concerns is that it's going to be that autonomous worlds is going to be one of these like buzzwords like metaverse, where it just gets applied to all sorts of things. And no one has a super clear definition of what does it mean to be this thing? Um I'm not sure I have a great answer, but I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on that. Yeah, I suppose for me it comes down to, I, I, even with the on-chain game building community, I find some people love the idea that it's undefined and let's explore that for six months before deciding what it is. Whereas I'm a see a problem, fix a problem sort of person. The fact that it's undefined at the moment causes me low-key stress at all times. And I, I want the Wikipedia page <laughs> the better still a Wikipedia page that can't be changed <laughs> so that we can <laughs> all decide this is what a definition because I think uh, you're right it has become a term that people will ape in on and say oh yeah I'm building an autonomous world when often it's uh and, and in a way that's you know that's fine but but also if it dilutes what's a really strong interesting idea then uh, that seems a shame. So in a way, I'd like some sort of some sort of definition, so we could say no. This is there's a purity and in, something interesting about this idea, and that is an on-chain game, but it's not quite an autonomous world for this, that, and the other reason. Yeah, from my perspective, my my gut reaction was to say, well, I think Uniswap might be an autonomous world, and then I thought, why don't I dial that back so there's some meaning to it. And I think that if I was going to turn Uniswap into an autonomous world, I would want there to be some sense of geography, a sense of coordinate or geometry to a smart contract. Um, and that makes it world-like. So that's why I'm comfortable with a garden simulator being an autonomous world, because it has space and time. But why I'm maybe not comfortable with Uniswap, which is just a you know automated market maker like DeFi protocol, which doesn't have a sense of space or time. So as a thought experiment, is the internet a, a, an autonomous world? Because here is a protocol where you can build things on top of permissionlessly, and there's no, I mean, there is centralization, but ultimately it's a decentralized network of sorts. I think the world is an autonomous world. Right, yeah. Right, so like our planet is autonomous. It will run whether or not we give up on running it. Um, right, right, right. Uh, right. So the the internet, I don't know. I don't have a sense of geography to the protocol, okay. right? The protocol doesn't understand space. Yep, yep. I would add that um, there needs to be a sense of persistence for it to be an autonomous world as well. I've seen mm -hmm. a number of, of, of teams building 
session like or, or sessioned games on the blockchain. I think Dark Forest is probably a good example of that. Dark Forest, every new version adds a bunch of functionalities and then the game doesn't really live on. Everyone pretty much abandons it. Obviously, the game's still there. And so maybe we should be calling it the autonomous world. Um, but I think that the stated goal of the world should be that it lives on and it stays functional and it will not be, you know, replaced without reason or it doesn't have a planned... What is that deprecation obsolescence? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I think, think that's right. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think it should be designed to run forever. And one of the things that I've learned in the last six months from talking with our on-chain, our on-chain game builders is that if you create, a, let's say, our MMO and we create this world that we hope people are going to come and have fun and do things, but inevitably people will find flaws in it, either flaws that they will game to their own advantage and the game becomes unbalanced or just bugs or both. And But I think it's important that that autonomous world isn't upgraded. I think that when you publish, let's call it, or create an autonomous world, then that should be it. There's no opportunity to alter it and it will live forever good or bad. I think what you do is you create another world and encourage people to move to it. But if people are just happy on that first world and don't like your second world, then there's, you know, people vote with their feet and they'll move to the next one. But I think, as you say, an important attribute of an autonomous world is that it it's immortal and immutable, good or bad. I think I'd take the other side of immortality. I don't think that's essential. Um, I think the world can kill itself, uh, I think mm-hmm. Mithrium has a good example of this, where yeah, their okay. world is self-killing um, uh, if players don't behave a certain way, which allows for a, a reset of the map. Um, and maybe there's a larger sense of like autonomousness since it comes back to life after it yeah, kills itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the come back to life doesn't seem necessary either, um, as long as like yeah, uh, it has to it has to keep running on its own, so it would run uh, forever or at least until designed, uh, without human intervention. But just to run until designed, I think. Yeah, you could call that an autonomous universe, because although the, the world might d- destroy itself, there'll be another one that pops up. Yeah, because this autonomous world's going to blow up soon anyway, right? So. Right. <laughs> Question for you all. Um, I don't know who mentioned it. I think, David, you did, that there's this... There's this new hype train and autonomous worlds is cool. What makes it about the concept of autonomous worlds that makes it so much better or more interesting or more hype-worthy than just fully on-chain games? Because it feels like there's suddenly this change. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, we're talking about games uh, here. Like, isn't this an interesting new way to run a World of Warcraft-style game? Mm -hmm. But then you can also apply that logic to other things like... What does a meta? That's what you'd imagine the metaverse should look like. I mean, you would hope that it's the metaverse doesn't end up being managed by Meta, right? And so, so if it's not by Meta, I don't want it by Google. I don't want it by Amazon. Wouldn't it be better if it was like our human world, where we're all abiding by the same set of physics, and we can build whatever we want, and we can be free to be as innovative as one as we want, and no taxes and uh, permissionlessness. That seems like a, a big idea. And, and the same, maybe that's a better way of running the internet uh, uh, rather than just consolidation toward a few big players. But instead, we've got this permissionless system where everything will keep running provided it, it uh, what you build fits with the protocols. So I think it's, 
even though we're, in a way, a game is a simulation of something that could be big or could be applied to different things in our digital world. I'm going to keep playing devil's advocate on you, David. Go on, go on. If if Meta built an autonomous world, it wouldn't matter who built it. It's autonomous, right? Yes, yes. Okay. I'm assuming that if Meta were to make it, then it wouldn't be an autonomous world. Right, it would be the worst case. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But... uh, yeah, and also I think it just op- it's one of those things that you know you've been making different kind of games for a long time, and it's one of those ones where when you open the door to it, you go, oh, well, that would be different, and that would work, and oh, that would be interesting. And I think the games industry has become a little bit stagnated. You know, we're seeing the same kind of mobile game, same kind of AAA console, and here's like a new idea where every month I'm in this space, somebody introduces a new idea. Like, oh, that was nobody's ever seen that before. That's so. There's it's just opening the door to a bunch of new things and i've got no particular beef unlike will with uh, you know hybrid games so i'm just teasing will but uh, you know but but i think in comparison there's just a lot more interesting new ideas by committing to being fully on chain this is going to sound like a cop-out but i think part, part of what's interesting is that we don't really know what's going to happen like right. there's going to be some emergent behavior that comes out of this when you're you're really just kind of uh, and, and it's not just necessarily one party, but you're dictating the physics or the rules of this world. But because it's permissionless and anyone can build on top of it, like, yes, games will be created. And that's a great sandbox for experimentation. It's probably why it sort of started with games. But other things could come out of it. Could be DAOs, could be other forms of like society or collective governance or marketplaces or other systems could emerge um, that you wouldn't necessarily characterize as a game right up front. Um, And I think it's that emergent behavior that's enabled by these really minimal rules that's particularly interesting. Yep. Well, have you come across things that you could define as autonomous worlds that are not within games? Or not trying to be games? Hmm. Good question. Uh, It's pretty tough because... Bitcoin, if it had a sense of geography, right, would be an autonomous world, but it doesn't. And so I think it just acts as a protocol um, like any other. And so I believe all the autonomous worlds I'd be able to think of would need to be run on a blockchain computer. Uh, And so it would need to be something that was native to Ethereum or some other equally complicated uh, Turing-complete system like perhaps uh, Cairo on top of Starkware. Mm-hmm. And so if I understand your definition of an on-chain game correctly, um, you would need to see a a um, geog- like geog- geographically based experience that lives on top of a blockchain, which until now broadly has been games worlds uh, or like metaverse experiences, which haven't really taken off and, and especially like right now don't make much sense to put on the blockchain. Even the vast majority of metaverse experiences have been hybrid, right? Where the logic is held off chain mm-hmm. and just the assets like the land parcels are sold on chain. Uh, so like very, very few fully on chain metaverses even exist as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, Certainly an exercise I had to do is thinking, why are we not Decentraland? Why are we not Sandbox? Why are we not Minecraft? Why are we not Roblox? Is this different? I think it's a, 
an important thing to test ourselves on. And I think um, in a way you can think of uh, uh, sandboxes, lots of different game experiences. Now, they happen to be connected. They have like a front-end menu, which is 3D. but uh, And so it looks like a continual game world. But, of course, you you go into through a door or something and it loads up a new world. So it does have a feeling of continuity about it. But ultimately, those are siloed experiences with their own sets of rules within it. And there's no concept of something in one silo being able to connect with the thing in a different silo. So I think they do a great job of presenting a a single game world, but in practice it's not. In the same way as uh, Minecraft, different, um, different worlds are essentially a bunch of separate worlds connected with a front-end menu and a shared engine. I've got no beef with Minecraft, very popular game. I'm just trying to... Just talk about what's different about Roblox and Minecraft and uh, Sandbox, etc. Yeah. Um, what are for you guys? Um, like, I'd like to get into some of the benefits or the affordances that putting game logic on chain gives game developers. Um, perhaps, David, you can kick us off because will you raise your hands? You want to kick us off? Yeah, I think, like, look, I, there was recently a paradigm paper that came out on this. Um, there's two benefits. One is that anybody can detect uh, at this point, which which are composability. Basically, everybody gets to be able to build, whether you're the designer of the game or a player. Um, and it's permissionless, so anybody can build anything. Uh, and then financialization. So because everything exists on chain and is trustless, you can start including money in ways that video games were never able to do. Uh, And I think a good way to compare it is to think maybe about the Warcraft 3 map editor. It's my favorite example, right? Because out of this map editor, we built Dota, League of Legends, the tower defense genre. uh, And that map editor has been recreated in different forms to reproduce things like teamfight tactics and Dota underlords, you know, incredible genres. And what that map editor had was this kind of composability, right? You use the tools of the game to rebuild and remix and then do whatever you want, but you, and it was sort of permissionless. Any player could remix and build with the game state that was provided, um, but you didn't get to own that state. Uh, it wasn't necessarily uh, yours to keep and you didn't get to own your players and you couldn't financialize it in any way. You couldn't sell what you were creating uh, and so later Roblox and Minecraft start opening avenues for monetization for players to build and sell uh, the mods they're building on the system. But there's always this platform risk that they can just rug you and take away your rights that just doesn't happen um, at the crypto level. I think it's also important to say that one very clear affordance that doesn't exist in fully on-chain games is any new game design opportunities. Uh, so like, it's not like AR where all of, or VR, where all of a sudden there's a whole new axis of, of fun you can do that didn't exist before that was enabled. Like the joystick adds a whole bunch of new gameplay. But putting a game on chain, I mean, it's still a Turing complete system and it's a slower one. So you don't get new fun that you couldn't just fake in Web 2. Uh, so I actually think that if we do find product market fit, the fully on-chain game after tinkering and exploring and building with various different people some nice game design 
we'll probably just port it to Web 2, where it'll run faster and better. Uh, and uh, that'll be interesting to see. If we port it to Web 2, will we bring the tokens with us? Will Web 3 fully on-chain games converge into Web 2.5 games over time? Yeah, I'm not sure I... There's a couple of things there I'm not sure I buy. First, first one is that uh, it was perfectly possible to build a match three game before the iPhone came out, but it was only... So it wasn't an iPhone that allowed for new game experiences. It was just more suitable and more... The iPhone was a great place to build a match three game, whether it's Bejeweled or Candy Crush. So I, I agree with your point that maybe you don't see brand new game mechanics, but I don't think you have to. I think there's been large part of the games industry is built by just new business models, new marketing models, more opportunity. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so, so I don't think we're necessarily, and and in our game, we're really not focusing on trying to introduce the world to new game mechanics because we're trying to do enough new things. Uh, so I'm not sure. And then, and then I've heard you talk about that point of taking ideas from Web three back to Web two, where it's easier to build. It feels a little odd to me that you would try and build them in Web three, and then why not just build? Uh, you know, I'm not sure I buy that second. Point. Well, because the, like you said, the business models are so different in Web three that we can discover wholly new game mechanics that were just impossible to discover before. The fact that you can make money with your Web3 game by just launching a governance token means you can build a game that monetizes in a totally different way from Candy Crush and from Diablo. Mm -hmm. And so when you can change the monetization, you change the kind of games you can make. But that once you discover that, that doesn't mean that you can't then re- and push it back, right? But, so we put Candy we were, Crush back on browser and Angry Birds back on browser. Well, but that famously didn't really happen, did it? But, but I mean, um, I, I think there's some of the things that we're talking about, particularly that point about composability, it's not obvious to me how you do replicate that in 2D without... Sorry, in 2D. In uh, <laughs> Web 2 without uh, introducing centralization again. Yeah, you don't bring the composability with you. You use the composability... And all that open design space and pub- to come up with the new games. Oh, I see. And then we strip the composability out. We completely, completely kill any novel, you know, ingenuity space, and we bring it. Because uh, this is what happened with with Warcraft with Warcraft 3's editor, right? We built Dota. It was beautiful and fun. And we were only able to discover and build it in that space. But then it wasn't the optimal form of it. wasn't there. It had to build its own client so it could monetize differently. I get it. I'm not sure okay. I believe it, but uh, I get I'll, it. I'll, I'll back you up on this, David, and then I'd love to have Matt's thoughts as well. So I feel bad piling on the guy who shared his whole life story, but um, <laughs> that's he, what I'm here for, baby. He's he's throwing out some of these controversial <laughs> takes, so um, he, he'll have to live with it. Um, it like to me, whatever game ends up being successful um, on like fully on chain it means that it will use the fact that it's fully on-chain in an essential way. And that will be through like monetization dynamics where the moment you add something um, to the game and people use it, you'll be able to like, you know, have like little fractions of value that come towards you. And um, the fact that it's on-chain will also imbue assets that are used within the game with more value just because you know you can be sure about scarcity, you can be sure about emission rates, um, and so the fact that something on chain, which is, by the way, something that wasn't mentioned, um, as far as I remember, in the uh, the paradigm piece, which is just a trustlessness and transparency of something that exists on the blockchain. Um, and so I, I think for, for these reasons and, and others, I don't think we'll 
um, see many games being developed on on, on fully on chain and then taken back to web the web two world because they wouldn't work there. The problem day. is they won't work in web three because we don't have enough scaling. So if we do find PMF in web three and we have unit economics that makes sense, um, it'll be stuck at like a thousand or ten thousand players, and then we'll be forced to leave. But it, th- does that that does that take into account um, future? Like research into future scaling and, and future advancements, or are you taking are you talking about today? This takes into account five years worth of scaling. Okay. So maybe you need ten years worth of scaling to get to forty thousand concurrent players or a hundred thousand. We don't know. Um, my guess is that you're actually gonna have to take the games off chain one way or another, but you can keep trustlessness. So if you look at what Dojo's building with a provable game engine on top of Starkware, you might be able to run entire game sessions off chain and then prove back to the chain you played them correctly. So at least you can't have, you know, infinite minting of assets, right? Everybody's like still following the logic of the game, mm-hmm. provably, using zero knowledge proofs. Is that, are you, you know, saying that it'll take five years before we can get to 40,000 CCUs uh, or concurrent players? Is that the general um, take of people in the space, or are you especially bearish on the advancements of blockchain scaling? Well, I mean, you could just sort of, uh, I don't think there is a general take, right? There's a sort of sense that we're going to saturate layer one Ethereum with rollups and that we can get about 100 optimisms on layer one before we run out of space. And each of those optimisms can run about 20 transactions per second when they juice up if they want to keep, you know, um, state sort of not bloated. And so that means you get 20 times 100, so 2,000 transactions per second. So if you want to take up the entire blockchain space for 2,000 players making one move a second, that's it. Uh, there's nothing left. Uh, and, we're, and we're not even close to using up all of Ethereum space yet for layer twos. Now, maybe we jump to layer threes and we reduce some of the security that we're looking for. That's possible. Maybe our layer twos get way better. You get things like Starkware's promise of 500 TPS in like four years, and maybe you can deploy a lot of Starkwares. Uh, but at the end of the day, when you do the math, like, and you get there, you just, you just run out of block space. It's too expensive. Interesting. Yep. David, what are you going to do, man? With your game? <laughs> I, I'm in big trouble now. I haven't done the math. <laughs> no, uh, you know, there's a thing about Moore's Law where... <clears throat> just obviously, if, if, I think we all know what Moore's law is—the the amount of uh, transistors on a circuit—and then it doubles every year. Am I getting this wrong? I should have said two years. Two years. Two years. Okay. And uh, and then there's been many points when it looks like ah, uh, you know, we're out of space. There's nothing we can do. But the commercial pressure to get more transistors on a circuit it gets so great that somebody figures out something amazing and we burst through for another three years and we figured something else out. My feeling is that something similar is going to happen with blockchain. Now, you're right, Will. I can't sit here and tell you what the magic thing is that's going to solve the problem you describe. But I, if there's enough commercial uh, need to break through that, then it will be broken through. Well, I, were you around for CryptoKitties? It was winter 2018 and... Uh, everybody wants to buy and sell CryptoKitties to the point mm-hmm. that Ethereum gets clogged to high hell. Transactions are $50 a pop. Most transactions aren't going through anymore. It's the worst user experience ever. 
And that was seven transactions per second, basically taken up entirely by one game. And today we have 10 times as much space, which is so not enough. And this is five years later. So in five years, we've only 10x'd our throughput for secure blockchain space. It's possible we need just to, to fake it, right? The number one way to scale blockchains is to make more of them, <laughs> uh, which is the Cosmos sort of view. Yeah. And so maybe you'll have a thousand Cosmos sidechains to Ethereum and use a very low security model and put your games on chain that way and sort of pretend like you're decentralized. That's also very likely. Yeah, I wanted to to touch on that because you you mentioned something earlier about like Web three going back to Web two, um, and we were talking about the analogy of like mobile free to play and match threes going back to you know non mobile platforms. Like, I think it's it. There's like a few different things we're conflating here. What one is like the business model? So you know, free to play was really innovated with the rise of mobile. And now you look today, like free-to-play is everywhere. Like seven of the top 10 Steam games are free-to-play. Uh, and we're not talking about mobile anymore. And in the same way, uh, you know, we might see some business model innov innovation coming out of Web3 and fully on-chain games that makes its way back to Web2.5 or Web2 to where it's like, yeah, it's on a blockchain, but it's not like a fully decentralized blockchain to Will's point. Like um, there's, a, there's a, a nuance between being decentralized and being on a blockchain. Like you can have a blockchain that only has a couple of nodes and validators. Um, and it's in effect, it's like not really decentralized. And you could, um, we could see, you know, like corporations or, or some sort of private parties that are like, um, yes, we're, we have our payment rails on a blockchain or we have the game is like, you know, recorded immutably on this centralized blockchain, but it's not really decentralized in the way that a lot of the folks in the fully on-chain gaming space would hope it would be. And so like, you, you, you have trade-offs, of course. So I think that's one way we could see it go like backwards to Will's point from Web 3 to Web 2.5. I see your skeptical look, so I'll, I'll pause for a, for a moment here. But I, I think one other thing that you've written about, uh, Will, is like maybe we have a model where the really important stuff, the high stakes, the esports, whatever, that happens on-chain and everything else happens off-chain. So I'm playing pick a game, Dark Forest, uh, on Web 2, and I'm practicing there. I'm getting all my building my skills there, but when I'm ready to like really play at a high stakes level, then it's on web three, then it's recorded immutably, then there's, you know, financialization involved. So anyways, a few different um, ideas getting tossed around here. Good. Will, with the smug look on your face that you had had, had earlier, and any additional thoughts? Tear it apart, please. No, I, I mean, I think that tokens change everything and that once the SEC gives us some clarity, we'll see a lot more tokens. I want to see a FIFA token. Like, I want FIFA to issue its stadiums and its players and its fans governance tokens over the protocol it is soccer. I want that for the NBA. I want it for Diablo. I want it for World of Warcraft. I think it's free money that all these game organizations can print. Uh, and I think that that's, like, one of the greatest features that fully on-chain games gets. and they they get it because it's trustless by nature of the blockchain providing trustlessness guarantees. But like people trust FIFA. I mean, they don't trust FIFA, but they trust FIFA enough um, to launch its token. And I think that we'll see lots of Web 2 innovation come from Web 3 desperately trying 
to find problems for the solutions it's discovering. I, I'd add one more point to the discussion about because yeah, I, I'm 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 interested in your point about tokens. Um, I would have to let it digest and and think like if if I'm FIFA, does it really make sense to to issue a token? Um, but I guess your point is like issuing a token doesn't even like no one knows what it means. So. <laughs> Like just do it and take the money and, and run, you know, um, which is fair. Um, I, just one more, more more point on the whole scaling issue. I think we're you know, we were talking about having forty thousand concurrent users, um, and I think you know forty thousand concurrent users playing a turn based game or playing a MOBA is a different story, right? And I, totally. I think that like games and game designers are, are famous or well known for being able to be extremely creative given high constraints, and so. You know, there's this game called Soccerverse um, that is a fully-fledged um, football simulation, the real football with a feet, you know, um, and they um, and it's fully on-chain. And so there's there's not a lot of decisions that go on when you're a football manager, right? You have to buy and sell players and maybe, like, I don't even, I, I don't play these games, but there's, there's, like, there's not a lot of decisions to be made. And so, you know, maybe these are the type of games that in the short term we'll see, you know, great innovation from. Yeah, and on that point, we had to make a lot of design choices when building fully on-chain MMO. You can't, we couldn't have made a Twitch game if we wanted to, so we had to do something that was slower paced and sort of design around it. But that's what game designers do. They look at the constraints. I've built games with much greater constraints than building it fully on-chain, and people still have fun with those games. So you just have to be smart about the medium. And it is currently restrictive. There's a set of things that's really difficult to do. But I'm also noticing in the space that people are finding solutions to some of the things that I thought were impossible a year ago. So it's just, it's a moving target. Um, I think the two things that I, and maybe we touched on it a little bit before, within the on-chain gaming space, I see some people that fully believe in this idea of inevitable financialization. So an idea that blockchain adds some degree of financialization by being fully on-chain, then you can it's you can see exactly what's going on. You can see what the logic is. You can run a game of poker on it without worrying about who's running the server, all that kind of stuff. And, and so it's it's perfect. And even a game like ours, where we're not building it around financialization, people will extract the value from it because if, if value exists in it. And and one of the things that so I'm seeing. For us, it's about permissionless composability, the idea that the players can extend the game. That's what's the most interesting thing about an on-chain game for us. For others, it's about hyper-financialization. Here's a, a game that you could trust with a million dollars because you can see the smart contract that it's running on. And um, so sort of the division of two different groups of people making different kind of games and, and also a question as to whether that hyper-financialization is inevitable in all on-chain games where you can sort of, that has value in it and you can build financialization around it. So um, at the moment, still unknown. Uh, as I said, to, to, to me, the most interesting thing is not about the financialization. Other people telling me that it's inevitable whether I like it or not. Yeah, I tried to argue that you could non-financialize a game using like soul-bound tokens. And in the end... I was proven wrong. Like, there's nothing you can do, really, to stop motivated players to financialize your game because they can wrap things in all kinds of ways. And once they start wrapping things, they become, even if you tried really hard to lock them down and not let them be sold, they can start selling them. Uh, and so if there's value that players have for things in the game, 
then there will be ways for them to sell them. So here's a question. Um, if if you believe sort of Bartle groups uh, where different players yep. have different motivations for playing, some people are there to win, other people are there to socialise, etc., then... You know, can I, as a game design task, can you create a game world where, sure, 5% of people are just there to extract all the value from the game, but you can still play alongside the 95% of people that don't care about playing the game that way? In our human world that we live in, there's a portion of capitalists that are out to try and make as much money as they can. Majority of people are, <laughs> we all stuck his hand up. There are other people that are just very happy to live a nice, uh, nice life and don't feel the need to be a billionaire, right? So, and, and I wouldn't say our human world is particularly well balanced, but, you know, we all coexist and it balanced to some degree. So a question that I'm currently mulling over is, is it possible to create a game that acknowledges that there's going to be some people that are going to be trying to pull all the value out of it, but it's still a game that the other 95% of people can have a good time playing? Un unanswered question for me at the moment. Well, well mobile was super successful at that. So I didn't hear? Mobile was super successful at that, right? Like the vast True. majority of games that are free to play have this same ratio, 5% care, make money, spend money, whatever, and the other just chill um so mm -hmm. hopefully the the problem we have one of the problems though with fully unchained games that we haven't really addressed in this conversation uh, is bots uh and how because these games are permissionless and don't have the kinds of front ends that police players the way we're used to in web 2 um we're basically guaranteed bots uh will take over any position that can make money uh, so if there is any financialization, there'll be cutthroat robots that fight for it, not people. Before we dive in, well, that's, I think, a whole like topic for, for a whole separate episode. But I think it's a, it's a really important one. Um, if you build a game, you can on-chain, you can assume, you can be certain that it's going to be botted to pieces. And as you already said, David, or and, and Will, that you know people are going to take out what they can as much as they can. And so you're going to have to, um, I, I would say, like, the current solution, and maybe this is going to be the solution for always, is that you. This is an extra constraint onto your game designing skills, um, but maybe we'll we'll find other solutions. Well, and also you talked about the fact that you opened the door to new ideas. Right now, I think most people would see. I think you, you described it the way you set it up. You say you've got the problem of bots, right? So. You know, historically, bots have been problematic. So, but they're inevitable in an on-chain game. There's really nothing you can do about that. So, if you acknowledge the fact that you can't do anything about it, then you start thinking about well, what kind of game would it be if we encouraged bots, and what? How do the humans have an edge over the bots? Oh, now, and maybe I don't know one way or the other, but maybe that leads to a different kind of game. So, I think it's a it's a good example of opening the door to a new set of things to think about, and mm. maybe creating some new game mechanics, new ideas. I love that. That's a great way to win this one as well. Where can people find you guys, Matt? Uh, sure. So uh, I have a newsletter called Dark Tunnels where I write about all these topics. Um, you can find that. Um, it's linked on my Twitter, my LinkedIn. I'm sure we'll link it in the show notes as well. Um, and otherwise, you can find my uh, research consultancy. It's called Always Scheming. Um, same place, social media. Uh, we'll we'll send out the links. Awesome. Will? Uh, you can find me at Danger Will Robin on Twitter. Uh, that's where you can see links to my other articles and to the company I work for, Alliance. We're always looking for early stage founders to invest in. If you're building anything in Web3, 
we'd love to mentor you and write you some checks. Mm. Me, <laughs> me too, by the way. So don't only go to Will. If it's in the game space, you can come No, 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 no. David's going to edit this part out. (laughs) I didn't do that. It's nice to be fought over there. I like, you know, this is great. Anyway, uh, yeah, I'm at playmint.com, P-L-A-Y, mint.com. And then from there, you can find me and my Twitter and uh, all that, uh, exactly what we're doing. So that's a good place to start. Do people sometimes spell it P-L-E-I-G-H, mint.com, or what are the <laughs> what are the worries? Only idiots would spell it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you don't want those on your website anyway, so I... Exactly. Yeah. Don't need to spell it. <laughs> Matt, Will, David, thank you so much for joining. Um, this was great, and I'll... Um, I'll, I'll yeah, I'll ask you guys to come on another time so we can talk about some of the threads that we pulled upon loosely so we can like unravel those and, and, and dig in some more. Perfect. Listener, I hope you enjoyed as well. Uh, if you did, let us know. Go follow these people. They put out good stuff, make good games. And um, yeah, if you're building this space, come to me first before Will. And that's that's pretty much it. Um, hope you enjoyed and we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Ciao. But really me first. <laughs>